Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Jackie Monson, SVP, Chief Integration Officer, Chief Information Security Officer, and Chief Privacy Officer with Sutter Health. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Jackie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, very good. Let's start off. You want to tell me a little bit about your organization and, and the roles that I mentioned that you hold. Absolutely. So Sutter Health is a Northern California integrated healthcare system. We have around 52,000 employees and uh, 24 hospitals, lots of ambulatory locations, uh, and it's worth about $17 billion. Um, so I'm fortunate enough to always hold more than one job title. And um, so I am the chief privacy officer, so accountable for the entire privacy program at Sutter Health, accountable as a chief information security officer for the security program, including cybersecurity. And um, my newest title is chief integration officer, which is uh, managing all of our major uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, anybody that we're integrating from externally into the organization. And I'm responsible for a pipeline of around $600 million worth of project initiatives, um, really to save the organization money, standardize, simplify, and uh, have the opportunity to invest that back into growth. All right. Excellent. So as you mentioned, you have a number of titles, uh, the integration officer you mentioned, which is new. Um, you held a title in the past called chief technology risk officer that you don't have anymore. I don't know if someone else has that or it's kind of been assumed those duties into other positions, but I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, you've got your chief information security officer and then who, you know, I interview a lot of CISOs and they talk about, they are essentially the mm -hmm. chief, chief risk officer, at least for technology sometimes you've, and we'll talk about that, whether or not that's going to roll up into someone that's in charge of enterprise risk of which uh, IT or cyber risk is a part. So for mm -hmm. example, you have risk of a hurricane and there's other risks, financial risks that have nothing to do with IT. But let's talk a little bit, let's, let's focus on that chief technology risk officer, what that was about, if that still exists, and your thoughts about um, where that technology risk belongs. Is it under the CIO, the CISO, this new title? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so um, Chief Technology Risk Officer doesn't exist at Sutter, although we maintain a dashboard, um, and it's and it's a shared shared opportunity between the Chief Digital Officer as well as myself, um, because the risk is technology related, and cybersecurity is a subset of that. Um, so we really evolved that in 2018. Um, we had a major outage at the time and really needed a greater appreciation for what is all the technology risk. Because I think, you know, the fear from the organization originally was we're gonna have a cyber attack and be down. Um, we didn't um, fully appreciate that a faulty switch in a data center could actually turn the power off for 27 hours and create other issues for us um, that had the same patient impact as potentially a cyber issue. And um, so we really evolved it to manage all of the technology risk, including cyber. So when I took the chief integration officer role, we really just decided that we were going to continue to maintain it in a partnership. And um, and that's what we do. Now, both of us sit on the enterprise risk management group, um, which is run by our Sutter Health chief risk officer. 
And so the greater appreciation, so technology risk is just one component of that enterprise risk management function, oversight and dashboard. So that gets to you know the national uh, natural disasters that you were alluding to that might have some technology risk, but it also has lots of other implications and risk to the organization. So that's kind of the umbrella of how we um, look at and manage a risk across the system. And and I think um, you know if I was sort of Imagining this going forward, I think the future is as that CISO role has evolved and as my role evolved to be way more focused on not just security, but all of the risk landscape around technology. I see a role in that chief risk officer organization that's specifically focused on technology risk. And I think some of the industry has evolved to that. A lot of them have not yet um, because they don't see sort of this holistic picture of all the implications to technology. Right. So cyber is a component of overall IT risk, and then overall IT risk is a component of enterprise risk. Exactly. rolls up. Yep. What's the relationship between the chief risk officer for uh, or a health? What is it or should it be the, the chief risk officer of the health system and emergency services who are going to be the, the folks that kind of deal with? Yeah, respond the, the to it. Yeah. Um, so today at Sutter, it's it reports into. Um, so we call that environmental risk and um, Sutter emergency response team uh, combined into one team. Um, and that team reports into the chief risk officer and um, they have a dotted line to operations because what they're really doing, if you have a major disaster, you know, we went through the wildfires in California several years ago that actually was you know, about 60 feet from one of our hospitals and really had to manage through how do we operationalize that? How do we move all those patients and get them to the right place? Um, so it's just a component of, and what I see evolving and this has evolved at Sutter is the risk function has a lot of the risk areas, the highest risk areas like compliance, um, you know, privacy and security reporting in in some way, either director dotted line so that you can really look at and appreciate all the risks across the organization, and then can manage it. So it's got to make sense on paper, right? I mean, you can look at an org chart uh, in terms of risk, and you could look at it and say, okay, this makes sense. This is Things are going to flow correctly. Everything's going to be reviewed, taken care of. It makes sense. Um, and I'm guessing the danger is if things wind up in a black hole if you're kind of doing it right and there's sort of a oh this stops here but it can't stop here because the problem right. won't be resolved if it stops here is that what you're trying to do when you look at exactly this? go ahead please yeah exactly it's to create full visibility and to make it not just one person's accountability but make it the organization's accountability to manage risk and then you know when you have full visibility everybody's going to see it right the executive leadership team is going to manage it um, you know, I'm going to see it on these M&A deals and want to manage it. And so I think that just holds uh, it's it holds the organization accountable more than that chief risk officer, because there's it would be impossible task to have that chief risk officer accountable for managing all risks for the organization. And so we, you know, actively have conversations at our board about, you know, how we're managing the risk, what action plans, and then they poke holes in it and say, actually, we're worried about this or we're worried about that. And then we change what we're, you know, focused on. If it's 
an area where, you know, perhaps we missed or we have additional opportunities, if they're worried about it, we should be worried about it too. Uh, one of the CIOs I was reading, uh, CISOs I was reading the other day, and he was talking about how understanding and appreciating risk is one of the challenges of hiring new people. Uh, they don't quite understand. They're either o- over, uh, overestimating or underestimating a particular issue. And that's real learning curve there for understanding the environment. And I've had other conversations that talk about context, uh, understanding. You would need to understand the sort of the operational context of the risk. For example, a clinician wants to bring in an application um, that they say is a game changer for patient safety and there are no competitors. Let's assume that's true. If you don't understand that, you might just look at that application in a vacuum and say, no, it's too much risk here. But if you have the context, you might say, okay, we'll see what we can do. We get it. Um, So what are your thoughts on those two issues there, those kind of two dynamics? Yeah, I I would completely agree with that. I think, you know, just thinking about the evolution of you got to have deep knowledge of operations and you got to understand risk. And that takes time. Right. You're not going to have and I'll give you an example of when I first started out in privacy, um, you know, in the first two weeks I was at Mayo Clinic. I think I visited my chief compliance officer boss every every other day telling him about all the risk that I was identifying. (laughs) And one of the things he said is, well, that's great, Jackie, but what are you doing about it? And how does how important is this really? And that was a game changer for me to think about it differently and think. Yeah, the world isn't black and white. And, um, you know, now that I think about it, having, you know, 20 plus years in this industry is everything that I went to about was not important and it wasn't high risk and it wasn't, you know, a, a real big issue. But if you don't see that holistic view and understand it, you're not going to really look at it, um, you know, from a true risk lens standpoint to appreciate, okay, well, you know, how big is the cybersecurity risk actually in comparison with, uh, you know, a natural disaster or a risk of patient safety and quality? And I think once you can see that whole picture, which takes experience to be able to evaluate it, that's critical to this chief risk officer role and anybody that's sitting in my type of role where you're trying to evaluate every single day what this risk is to the organization. And then what you do about it and how you manage it and what that sense of urgency is. And um, so I definitely think it's an evolution that if you're starting out in this space, you're not going to fully know and acknowledging that and then understanding the, the, the big picture. And I feel like it's a constant learning. I'm still learning, um, you know, and I've been at Sutter for uh, 11 years now and I'm still learning the organization. And I would tell you that with my integration role, because I'm doing both internal and external integration that I have an even greater appreciation for, you know, what all the risks are for the organization and how you kind of manage through that. And so having the touch on everything versus a narrow area, I think is critically important to, you know, managing through it. Because the other thing is, is in healthcare, it's not unlimited funds, right? We can't Mm -hmm. mitigate every single risk. And so you really do have to balance all of those risks and identify which ones are the most important risks that we absolutely have to either mitigate or or identify how we can manage it. Yep, yep, makes a lot of sense. So, you know, from what you're saying, a few things came to mind. One is that 
A lot of IT departments in hospitals, they like to pluck from the operations side. It's great. It works. You know, sometimes people are looking for that challenge. And then you get that operational experience. They say it's easier to teach, teach someone in healthcare some IT than to teach someone in IT healthcare, perhaps. Um, there's, you know, there was a bit of a trend around, you know, it's super cool to hire from outside of healthcare, you know, cause everybody's doing it better. And, but then again, you don't have that operational experience. So you may be getting someone who's doing all this cool stuff in banking, but there's a lot of context. They had big learning curve there. Um, and the other thought I had when you were talking is if you really want to move up, if you're in it cyber and you really want to move up. You have to get out of the IT department. You got to round. You got to understand operations. So you need to make that a priority and push that if you want to advance in your career. You need to ask your manager, "What can I do to better understand operations?" Uh, your thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I think, uh, and and in fact, I served as an interim CIO uh, last year at Sutter, and um, I was a little surprised that most of the uh, 1,400 individuals that worked in IT, nobody had been out in the field to sit with clinicians. And, um, you know, rounding, I think, is an absolutely important thing. So I made it a part of their job requirements that they had to spend at least 10 hours a month out in the field learning it um, and understanding what the challenges are and how they implicate it. So if you have a system outage on an application, you might not think it's a big deal if you're sitting in the ITO, we'll fix it. We're moving forward, but in reality, one hour down in your electronic health record is a pretty big patient and uh, clinician impact. So I think it's absolutely critically important. I think on the idea of operations to IT, um, you know, I uh, some of those skills are transferable and they aren't. Um, so I think it depends on where the where the niche of the skills are and how that fits together. And, and um, I also, you know, individuals that come from other industries, often the challenge is they don't understand the complexity. Uh, healthcare is way more complex, especially the IT infrastructure and operations. So over the last year, Sutter's onboarded a lot of new senior executives. We got a new CEO last December. And, um, you know, me and a couple other individuals are the only ones left from the original group and are having to bridge that knowledge gap of just, well, why did we do what we did? Why did we make the decisions that we made and how do we move forward? And so I think there's just a lot of complexity um, and acronyms and everything else in healthcare that you have to get up to speed on to be able to effectively do your job. And that has to play into, you know, how who you hire and how you hire. I always think that some disruptors are helpful. Um, different perspective, different experiences, but too many of them will create challenges for you and not understanding uh, what you're what you're dealing with. And at the end of the day, there's a patient at the end of everything you're doing and touching, and you have to be thoughtful about that. Yeah, I was reading an article um, the other day. I think it was had to do with the CIO of Walgreens. It was one of these big national pharmacy chains. The CIO, who's now the former CIO. And uh, one of the ideas was uh, he was reflecting, I believe, on his time there and thought he pushed too much change too fast. And that is why he was unsuccessful. Um, and I've heard this before, that there is an ability 
of an organization to only handle so much change at any particular time. I wonder what your thoughts are around that kind of concept or dynamic. Yeah. So in my integration team, I actually have a change management function and it's to manage through change and the speed of change. And I think um, generally people's barometer for change is very little. It's actually mm-hmm. less than 10% tolerance. And my barometer for change is like 95%. So I'm all on the bus with whatever changes we want to make, which is why I'm in this integration role. Um, but the rest of the organization isn't. And then, you know, you get this fatigue with, um, you know, you come to work every day and there's, you know, seven things out of the 10 things that you're supposed to do are completely different. And so we actually, and I think there's a big, um, there's a big uh, opportunity with change management and really appreciating exactly that. You know, what do we change? How do we change it? And then how is that impacting everything else that's going on and, and, you know, the frontline staff who are dealing with all this change and adversity and they're taking care of patients. So, and and everybody across it, you know, through the pandemic, we had a lot of change, right? Everything turned to Zoom. Um, We found new ways to kind of connect with your colleagues and um, that change and that rate of change. Now, when you try to get individuals to come back to the office, they don't want to. And um, because they like, they like it the way that it is. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity around change. And I would agree with his assessment. You have to contemplate how much change you do, how the speed of which you change. Um, because if you don't, you'll end up having everybody opt out and they just won't do whatever your whatever major initiative or technology that you're trying to get them to embrace. Um, it's challenging. And I think about like security phishing, phishing emails. Um, you know, we did a phishing program seven or eight years ago now, and I got hate mail every single day. Why would you do this to us? You're disrupting our inboxes. You're disrupting patient care. And now it's the polar opposite. And we have almost a 0% click rate. At that time, we had, I think, like a 52% click oh, rate. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I have people thanking me because they see those real life phishing examples. And then then when they go to their personal email accounts or they get the text message or they don't fall victim to those scams. And so it's turned into this teaching moment, but at first it wasn't. And so I think that's just an example of how, um, you know, change is hard and it takes time. And if you, you, you do have to be strategic about what you're doing how you're doing at the speed of what you're going to manage through it, because there's only so much change tolerance before they just opt out. Yeah. So um, interesting there. A um, couple things. Number one, I think it's was very interesting how you talked about understanding the minimal level of change that people can tolerate in general. And I totally agree with that. I think people are extremely intolerant to change. Um, I'll never, <laughs> my father who's passed away now, um, he used to use Yahoo Mail. And I think he logged in one day and they moved the button and he was up in arms. You know, why did they do this? There was nothing. It was kind of comical. So people despise change. You mentioned that you love change. You're cool with it. You're great with it. But you're you're enlightened enough to understand I can't operate on that premise. Even though I'm that way, I have to understand because I want to succeed. I don't just want to show that I tried to drive as much change as possible and fail. That's not the goal. 
right? So exactly. let's understand the limitations of what we're trying to do and work within that construct, right? That Yeah, that's exactly right. And you have to appreciate where you are versus where everybody else in the organization is. And so because my barometer of change is so high, you know, I'll go out in the field and say, how would this impact you if we're going to do this? And how much time would it take to adjust? And, um, you know, I leverage these change management experts to really think through it. Um, you know, we just did a a, a large um, merger with Samsung um, in, in Southern California, and it, it was big change for both sets of the organization. It's the first time we did any M&A since 1999. And so you really have to manage through thinking about all sides of it and how you really coalesce that to create the story for both organizations. All right. Very good. I want to um, ask you sort of an open-ended question and just, you know, see where you want to take it. What are either some of the the big trends you're looking at or watching or thinking about that you want to position your organization to either be ready for sort of that skate, skate to the puck type concept? What are you looking at? Yeah. So I think uh, the biggest area of where I'm focused right now is continuing on the, in the cybersecurity front, using everything we can from a technology standpoint to continue to be intelligent about not only in our perimeter, but what are these alerts telling us and how can we narrowly focus on the ones that matter the most? And then I would say my other area of, of real focus right now is third party. Um, and the reason why third party, as we've been talking about risk the entire time is, you know, we um, with the move it, move it was very impactful. So we've seen 30 third party breaches over the last several years, but move it that started in May and continues to be a gift that doesn't stop giving has been hugely challenging and impacting to many vendors in this space. And so, you know, it 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 just highlights the risk conversation of, um, you know, whatever your third parties are doing, you have to care about too, because it's going to impact you downstream. And so I've spent a lot of time over the last four or five months really notifying on breaches for these third parties on Move It. And so we're really focused on what else can we do in the third party risk area to manage through it. So they have, um, you know, we have questionnaires, we have evaluations, we have credit-like scores for these vendors. But at the end of the day, it's not actually helping us mitigate any of the risk. And so, you know, looking in the forward-facing mirror, how do we actually mitigate risk? And is it potentially a different way where we do what and, and what we do with our independent physicians, which is we offer them the same cyber technology that we have through a third party, and they provide the monitoring. We get the metrics of how compliant they are with it, what their threats and risks are, and we don't spend any time doing assessments anymore. And so I'm really, really thinking through uh, the third party risk area and how we think about that differently and how we, um, you know, are there better ways to kind of manage that risk holistically than how we do it today? If you want to go through that with me a little bit more, um, is it, in, in essence, sort of taking the risk and pushing it off to someone else? Is that what we're talking about? No, it's actually, um, it's requiring them to have minimum cybersecurity hygiene. Um, you know, so in the case of our independent physicians. And these are your vendors? Oh, you're talking about the physicians, independent I'm physicians. I'm using the physicians as an example, but I'm talking mm -hmm. about vendors. Um, okay. You know, so in a lot of these situations, like I'll just give you one example. I won't name the vendor, mm -hmm. but um, they, we send them an encrypted file 
They decrypted it on their side. They never re-encrypted it. And they didn't have multi-factor authentication or implicated by Movid. To me, in that situation, that's completely preventable. And so how do we actually just prevent it? So if we know that a vendor doesn't have multi-factor authentication and doesn't have good encryption practices, why aren't we just having them do that? And if they don't have the means to do it themselves, do we instead push them to, you know, a third party that has a complete technology stack that they can essentially put the controls in place for them? And it becomes, instead of us doing a questionnaire, asking them to tell us what they're doing, relying on them being truthful about that, we would actually just monitor that they have all the controls in place that we would expect them to, that they have the right policies and procedures. And this would all be managed through that third party versus us. Because I think the days of questionnaires are over. Nobody's being honest on them. No. Sometimes they don't even know the what we're asking them. And we're finding this out through the breach um, when you have to be transparent because you're working on a regulatory investigation where they're asking these specific things and they want proof of the controls and the compliance requirements. And so that's that's where I'm thinking now. How do you, you know, sort of force somebody to put a control in place? I think the only way is to just say, we're not going to do business with you unless you have this. And I personally think that in healthcare, um, that's where we need to go. Um, because we notified several thousand patients since May of these breaches, and the gift just keeps on coming, right? I'm getting notified still today, and there's lots of concerns with that, right? Like, why are you just figuring this out? Um, it happened in May. How do you not know somebody was in your environment? If you have the move it, you know, file sharing, that should be something you evaluate right away. And if you don't have the ability to do that, hire a third party to do that. And that's just not how these things are coming to fruition. And then as they come to fruition and you get these forensic reports, it's basic security controls that they don't have in place. And so, you know, how do we're not going to prevent every breach with all the security controls because they find they find other ways to get into the systems, but we could prevent a lot of them if we thought about it differently and throughout the cost that we do on these assessments and pour that cost into actually helping these vendors get the security controls that we want them to have. Right. Because the current process is absolutely unmanageable. It's right? unmanageable and it's not helping. It's not right. actually mitigating any risk. Right. So you've got people spending all this time sending out questionnaires, getting this back, keeping track of it. It's all nonsense, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I can imagine at most of these vendors, they get the questionnaire uh, and it's like, well, you just say yes on everything. We'll get the deal. Let's get the deal. Say yes on everything. If there's anything big, make a note to take care of it. Like if there's a control, say we have it and let's maybe get it down the road. Right. I mean, they want the deal. Yeah. They want the. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's crazy. It's it's just almost a comical, crazy system. And like you said, all this work managing these questionnaires that are inherently useless. Yep. And so application rationalization seems to me a major way to mitigate this. Like that's a realistic, practical way to try and work on third-party risk. You're talking about one avenue of doing it. But another thing is if we've got this big pile of spaghetti, let's fundamentally shrink the pile of spaghetti. Right there, we're going to reduce our risk, right? Yeah, I think application rationalization, maybe even just 
where the data, you know, narrowed even more specifically to the systems that have data. Mm-hmm. And then how are you managing that data? I think in healthcare, we share data a lot, right? And with the government, with third parties, they do this data analysis. And that's where we're really, I think, having more robust data governance and really focusing on, do these third parties actually need our data to get their job done? And if they do, then can they delete it? And can mm. they delete it in you know a short period of time? I think Apple application rationalization, having done that over the last six or seven years at Sutter, it's more complex than you think Mm -hmm. because you got a lot of attachment to these applications, you know, maybe not the epics of the world, um, you know, which I think are, are pretty secure. It's the mom and pop shop where 20 years ago, a physician had this need and they've kept it ever since. Uh, Those are the biggest challenges. And, and to try to, find solutions in a standard way for them takes a lot of time and takes a lot of buy-in and conversation. And so, you know, we took this project on um, several years ago, I think in 2018, and our goal was to rationalize 50 applications a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got about 15 a year done because of the stakeholder engagement requirement to make sure that we had an alternative solution in place to be able to manage it. And so what we're really focused on is is um, integration of our core systems and making sure that, um, you know, for example, Epic, some of our ambulatory um, surgery centers and some of our other ancillary businesses don't have Epic today. And so how do we widespread deploy that? And then once we're done, rationalize all the applications that sit at those ambulatory surgery centers or our um, home care uh ancillary services too. And so I think um, having done it in different ways that between the data governance piece, which I do not think is an area where there's a lot of deep focus besides California, because we have to be right with the additional privacy regulations we have, people don't think about map where their data is going, who Mm -hmm. has it, and then how long do they keep it? And I think with move it, that was highlighted exponentially because even vendors that you know, healthcare organizations aren't currently doing business with, they had data sitting from those organizations in this file share system. So how do you push for more data destruction and deletion once they're done with their analysis or analytics versus keeping that data for however long they want, I think is an area that uh, healthcare could be focused on today that would really manage risk. Yeah, and it makes me think um, that, from here going forward, right, we've got everything that's in-house, has users, nobody, and we talked about how nobody wants to change. So you come in, you start saying, hey, how about an alternative, this or that? Whoa, 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 right? So change is hard. Taking away someone's application is like taking away a child's, uh, you know, what's a, whatever that thing is, pacifier, right? So yeah. not to be dismissive, but it can be very difficult. So you want, you really don't want to let anything in the door. You don't want to let any more mom and pops in the door. You don't have to, right? Absolutely. You can't get rid of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you, you know, I think the only space where we're seeing is the artificial intelligence area, the AI um, space where you're, I'm seeing a lot of startups and, you know, we're, we're kind of managing through it and that we're not really looking at them as much as we're looking at the bigger vendors like Mm -hmm. Microsoft, or we have deep trust and relationships, but I think smaller organizations that aren't in a position that Sutter's in, they're looking at the smaller organizations. So until we sort of close that door, 
um, or figure out a different way to manage it, it's going to continue to be high risk. Yeah, e- easy to get them in, hard to get them out. So be yeah. very careful about who you let in. Um, we're we're just about out of time. I do want to ask you for one final question, a little bit of a different vibe to this question. But um, you are a very interesting person. You have multiple C-suite credentials that shift and change. Um, it's very, it's not, not something you see a lot. My point being, um, I think you probably have a very unique skill set a very high leadership abilities. You're doing something right over there. And what can you share about your approach to leadership, handling yourself, managing people? What advice could you give that allows you to be successful that you think this is part of my secret sauce this is part of what helps me to be successful. Um, so if you want to share something there, I think it might be helpful. Yeah. Um, so I would say in leadership, I'm definitely a servant leader and I, I, I lead with learning. And so, you know, all, all of my different roles, you know, I, I, I'm number one, a leader first, subject matter expert second. And so I take that role seriously in both understanding the business, understanding what we're doing and why we're doing it and make sure that I'm adding value as an advisor, not just in my own subject matter area, but in anything with respect to leadership. And then on managing people, um, you know, my perspective on that is people are our most important assets. Uh, you have to hire people that are smarter than you, uh, that that can get the work done and can think differently. Don't hire people that are like you and then invest in them. I spend a tremendous amount of time. Every single person on my team has a, a development plan. And I personally spend time getting to know them, even though my team is huge. You know, it's over 300 people. I spend a ton of time getting to know them, knowing their family, what makes them tick. And then most importantly, where do they see themselves? Where do I see them? And then how do we work hard to get them there? So career growth and development is a huge area for me to focus on. And and then I say I'm a lifelong lesson learner. And um, I think I spend a lot of time reflecting on both feedback from others as well as watching. Um, you know, so I have a psychology background, and so I was interesting to look and evaluate. Um, you know, who are the successful leaders and who are the less successful leaders, and then why, mm-hmm. and what can you learn from them? What can you learn from your own mistakes? And then how do you enhance yourself and be a better version of yourself every single day? And so that's what I mean by a lifelong lesson learner. When I uh, learn lessons, which I do every single day. I share them with my team and, you know, a, a humble way, whether mm-hmm. they're good or bad of, you know, what, and then what am I going to do about it? How am mm-hmm. I going to address it and change? And I think in this environment, um, you know, it's high stress, it's um, high visibility. You have to be thoughtful about how you're going to adjust your sales to accommodate what's next and how you change your skill set based on what the needs of the organization are. Awesome, Jackie. I want to thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our talk. Thank you so much for having me.